live. <laughs> Hi, this is Podcast is Unleashed. I'm your host for today, Simon Rushton, and I have my beautiful co-hosts or handsome co-hosts who are alongside me. And we're going to be talking about the effects of big business and the government. But before we get into that, let's just have um, my co-hosts introduce themselves. So, Carlos, I'm sorry, Howler, starting with you and then moving on to the right. Thank you, Simon. So I'm the host of the podcast Women Stories, where I share real stories from real women across the globe. So tune in to new episode this week. Over to you, Carla. Hi, I'm Carla, and I'm the host of the Wonder and Wellbeing podcast, which is a podcast for parents and educators of kids between the ages of five and 14 years old. And it's all about well-being and education. Over to you, Victor. Hi, I'm Victor. I'm the, co I'm the host of a, um, the Aspire Entrepreneurs podcast, where we talk about strategies. I interview um, entrepreneurs and we talk about strategies of how to live the nine to five towards a lifestyle of freedom. Over to you, Matilda. Hello, everyone. I'm Matilda, host of Coffee with Matilda, Journey to Self. And my podcast is about loving yourself, finding yourself, and coming out of uh, adversity stronger. Over to you, Simon. Thank you, gang. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I'm Simon, as you said, and Taxi Chronicles is my podcast. Like I always say, I've got over 500 episodes, and they're short and sweet. They're five to 20 minutes long. There's something there for everybody, so it won't spoil your day first thing in the morning. But moving along, today, as I said, we're going to be talking about the effects of... I... Sorry, <laughs> Howard, do you want to read out that comment quickly? Yes, we have George again in our show. Thank you for coming again, George. And he's from Massachusetts. That's Ma how you pronounce it? Massachusetts. He's from Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Okay. <laughs> okay. So moving on, the reason the effects of big business and government and basically how it affects us, the everyday citizens or public, uh, the pub general public. So my introduction is basically the reason I've chosen this topic is because for a long time, in my personal opinion, big business has influenced on government and has been getting greater and greater influence. My fear is that if not already, we will be at the mercy of the few corporations. The aim, the aim of this debate is to enlighten each other about our current situation by looking at governments around the world, because we're all from different places in the world. That's great thing to have is Zoom and StreamYard um, and discuss how big business has affected them and the aftermath of the public, um, the pub, and sorry, how the business has affected us and what the public uh, are left with in their aftermath, sorry. So moving along, what we're going to be doing, we're just going to define what definition of big business and government so everybody's on the same page and then we can move along from there so howlo if you can read that out for us please yes i'm just putting it, putting it in the screen now so big business basically it's a large large scale or important financial or commercial activity uh while governments so are talking about uh the traditional government is the group of people with the authority to go, to govern a country or state a particular ministry in office back to you simon Thanks a lot for that. Now, we've got 
we're going to have some videos throughout this show. Not too many, but we're just going to video just to emphasize our points. We've got big corporations like Microsoft that were split up at the begin, uh, split up when they got too big, and that was in 1998. They were told, and by 1990, it was all in effect, where one division, Microsoft, is software only, and the other one is hardware, and that's because they just became too much, too influential uh, in the American public, which wasn't in the American public interest, and they were suppressing other companies. So that's a, that's a typical example of what we're going to be discussing. But we're also going to be discussing that big business for what it is for each and everybody's individual country. So Matilda, our question goes to you, where you're, um, sorry, you're Iranian-born, but you're Armenian heritage. And our question is to you, Iran has an Islamic Republic. How does big business affect Iranian politics and society today? And we could all throw in their religion, because obviously you can't get Iran without a religion. <laughs> Over to you, Madura. Yeah, um, actually, I, I mean, I think most of the people know Iran has a lot of sanctions right now. So having a foreign big company to come to Iran is a very difficult problem because uh, and it's a, it, it is a problem and also an opportunity for foreign big companies because they're waiting for the opportunity now uh, to get in. Uh, Iran has more than 80 million, more than close to 90 million population. And 70% uh, of them are, are um, younger than 40 years. So very young, very young generation and population. And also very educated one. Uh, Iran has one of the highest countries that has PhD per capita, so there is a lot of potential there. And also, when you when you add um, young generation that has very good work ethic, you learn the work ethic from school because they you have to work a lot uh, and has a lot of good education. You will have a bomba soon. So um, foreign uh, companies they are looking for opportunities in Iran. Iran will be a very successful country if these sanctions allow. But also big companies in Iran, I don't think, I mean, they cannot go very far if they're not part of the system. For example, I'm going to give you a company called Snap, which is the Uber of Western world. Um, they couldn't, they, they started as a startup and it was going very well. At one point, government doesn't allow you if you don't have connection to get bigger and bigger. So whoever you see in Iran right now f has a big company, they have some sort of a connection, some sort of a relation with the government, with which mostly they are Basijis. Thanks for that, Matilda. But what we're also interested in is that everyday um, businesses that are Iranian-owned do you see a mix that is maybe not in the public interest? Do, are they influence? Do they have a big influence on the Iranian government or the religious system or anything like that? In Iran? Yep, in Iran. Um, well, you cannot be part of, uh, again, uh, you cannot be, for example, religious or part of the system to have a big cut in a business. Um, the government is not going to allow you. So when you they see you make profits, they will come, either they want to cut you 
or you need to make a deal with them. And if you resist, you might be dead. So you better collaborate with them. Uh, because we see a lot of like top nuclear people that, um, you know, they wanted to do something independently. The government doesn't allow them or you're not, you're not around anymore. Somehow something happens to you and you're not around. <laughs> you don't go to work next day. Whoopsie. <laughs> okay. Okay. So just to make sure I'm on the same page with you. If you're in government, you're in government. If you're in business, you're in business. And if you're in religion, you're in religion. You can't, yeah. none of the three can mix. No, 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 it mix. If you want to go high places. Oh, they do mix. mix. Okay. But lower level, you don't need to. But okay. Once the government realizes you're making money and there is a huge opportunity there. I mean, you need to be part of the government. Oh, okay. part of the religion system otherwise okay you're not going to be around much oh i see what you mean so you need, to, you need to join the party and give them their yeah. cut otherwise exactly. it's going to be all over okay that's that's very very interesting victor now question to you is nigeria has a massive oil reserve what influence do the oil companies have on nigerian government today Simon, the influence, the influence is, 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 thank you very much, Simon. And Matilda, I like that word that you use, whoopsie, because <laughs> that, <laughs> that is the type of influence that the oil company has been having in Nigeria for since inception, since the 1920s, when oil, first, when oil was first discovered in Nigeria. So, see, Nigeria is heavily dependent on oil, and... Um, most of its foreign reserves, the export is all oil-based. So like 40% is oil-based. And its revenue is like almost 80% is based on oil. So we are heavily, heavily dependent on oil. So and that gives, you know, who whoever pays the piper detects, you know, how we dance. We have about um we have about three, five of the biggest oil companies in the world are all resident in Nigeria. So we have Shell, we have Exxon, um, Exxon Mobil, we have Ajip, we have Start Oil, we have BP. So all these oil companies are based in Nigeria. And take Shell, for example, Shell is the biggest. And Shell is the largest oil company in Nigeria. And they've been having serious legal battles even during the military junta, during the military days, where we had this famous, um, this famous Nigerian um, activist who was killed in his land because he just wanted a fair deal. And uh, his name was um, Ken Sarawiwa. He's still being celebrated today in the Niger Delta region. Because the region I come from is where all the oil reserves are. And we see the injustices that are happening in the oil, in the oil sector and how it influences Nigeria. When you, when you kind of resist, the military comes in. And who controls the military is the government. So, and when the military comes in, they kind of clear, they kind of clear out every resistance that is in their way. And the oil companies, they, they, they bring their boots on the ground. So when, when spillage takes place, you can't hold the oil companies to account. 
You can't sue them in Nigeria. You can't take them to court. You can't expect justice to happen in Nigeria. The recent, the recent, so now indigenous villages are taking Shell, Chevron, and all these companies to the Hague instead of like going after, instead of going after them in the Nigerian court of law. So when you go after them outside the jurisdiction of the government of Nigeria, they, they really have no, no, no stay anymore because now they're being uh, they're being tried in a criminal court in a, in a, in a what's it called the Hague is the international criminal court so they've been tried there and the they I get justice it's an ICC yeah yeah, uh, yeah. so they try them yeah so they try the, the, the case goes there and stays there because they have their multi billion dollar companies so they they can outlive generations to get justice so remember. The transport, the transportation fare from Nigeria to the Hague is not, is not easy. So you have to get visas, you have to get, so these are the frustrations for people from United Data to like get um, justice. But fortunately enough, I think it was um, this year or last year, they won a case, one of the landmark cases, and Shell was like ordered to pay billions of dollars in settlement because of spillage, because when you see some villages, you can't even you can't even go to the farm anymore. You can't go to the normal day-to-day uh, -day occupation. You can't even do that anymore. So when you call on the government to call the oil companies to put them in check, they just come and they come back to you and say, you know what, you need to get this settlement and leave your village. But if you don't, then that's where Matilda's word comes in. We'll see. It won't be around anymore. <laughs> okay. So, um, can yeah. I ask? Is this is because, from my understanding, is this is where Book Book of Haram come into play? Were they upset with the treatment? Is that correct, or is it something? No, no, different? no, no. See, the Book of Haram issue. Book of Haram is far, far, far from Nigeria. It's a very big. Oh, okay. Book of Haram is from the north, northeast. Book of Haram is just a speck on the other, the far end of Nigeria, which takes me like almost two days on the road to get there. Okay, so um, Harla, do you want to read out this comment, please? Yes, we have a comment from our lovely fan, Sasha. He's saying, uh, if you are pragmatic, life is just about balance of power after it is just communication and propaganda. Yes, we do agree with you, Sasha. <laughs> okay, okay. So hopefully we're going to have here some positive statements about government and big business yet to come, but we'll just see how, how it goes moving along. But moving along, what I'm going to do now, I'm going to play, uh, there's a video, and it's what this video is about. It's about London, and it's about that for the last 40 years, there's a guy called um, Rupert Murdoch, and he owns Sky TV. He also owns um, most of the newspapers, if not all, in London, or in England, I should say, United Kingdom. He owns the newspapers in Australia, so that's where he's from. And he owns Fox News. So he has the ability to put people in power um, and remove people from power by influence public opinion, if you see what I mean. And it was said as a fact that when he was selling certain assets he had trump phoned him personally and said are you going to sell you're not selling fox news because trump knew 
that was his platform and him and Trump were good friends. And he said to Trump, don't worry, I'd never sell that because I know you need it kind of thing. But this is this this little, um, excuse me, this little um, video is going to be explaining. So it's going to be explaining what the situation was in London, in England at that time. So if you can bear with me one second. I wasn't sure whether this was a story that I necessarily wanted to get involved in. So, okay, a, a tabloid newspaper is committing crimes to get information for stories. It is shocking and it is wrong, but actually the final connection that meant that it was a story that was worth pursuing was that the guy who'd been in charge of the news of the world while all this crime was going on had left and was now the right-hand man to the conservative leader, David Cameron. It was that, the idea of a guy who'd been responsible for industrial-scale crime, Andy Coulson, finding himself right at the heart of power. That was ultimately the single thing that meant that what Mr. Apollo was telling me in that hotel room was worth pursuing. Okay, so later on, let me just remove from that. Later on, that guy um, became president, not the corrupt guy, but sorry, prime minister, David Cameron, um, for, for those who know British politics. And this was a prime example of how big business can influence politics without even money changing hand, because that guy has been in power for four pre uh, prime ministers. And for those prime ministers, they all had to come and kiss the ring to get him on side, and he would tell them what he wants them to do, as well as they knew they wouldn't get the election. So but <laughs> these are these kind of issues that um, even in the Western countries, uh, don't say even as if we're, not, we're better than other people, but we still have our problems. Uh, we've got some comments here, um, Howler. Yes, we have comments from Daniel, and he's back. Thank you, for, thank you for coming back, Daniel. So he said, in Africa, what affects big businesses are policies and laid down standards and procedures. Most of these businesses are built by the governments and pays check these loans on higher interests. Yes, but don't forget also the multinational corporation where they are installed in Africa and in different countries, and they do like a massive... <laughs> exploitation of the country itself. Uh, thanks, Daniel. And Anders, he's saying, uh, influence or corrupt? Back to you, Simon. Thank you. Nice to see you back, um, Anders and Daniel. Excuse me. Um, so our next question goes to Carla, and it says, after living in Qatar uh, under an absolute monarchy, what did you notice the monarchy, um, sorry, what did you notice how the monarchy allowed big business to function in relationship to the public's interest? So over to you, Carla. Um, the first thing I noticed uh, there, when you go there as an expert, you notice um, how much of the interests of the government are lean towards uh, two things. So first of all, it's the development of the Qatari people. So that's a priority. Um, and I was quite surprised when I heard of a Qatarization agenda when I lived there, which basically meant that any development or any progress, any investment was for Qatari people first. 
Um, and they only started to invest outside of Qatar, actually, when their own country had, had reached a point where they had they had a rate of development that they were happy with. Everything was continuing to thrive and to grow in terms of education, in terms of industry, employment. I think at one point, Qatar also had a 0% unemployment. Um, of course, we don't know how, they, how countries um, determine their statistics, but basically that meant that anybody who needed to have a job amongst the Qatari people did, did have one. Um, and it's not difficult for them to get one. Um, what was also, as, and is still the case, is that where, if you're a foreigner, for example, and you want to start a business in Qatar, um, you have to have a Qatari business partner at sponsoring you to do that. And 49% is the maximum amount of um, profits that can go to the, the foreigner uh, in the partnership, whereas 51% always has to go to the Qatari. Um, and that is also quite interesting because I think in a lot of countries you don't have that. You don't have that interest where it specifies that a local person has to benefit the most in terms of profit from the, the business. And when it comes to outside, like I said, the majority of the investment and the development was all internal. So it was it was when I went there in 2012. Um, it had been growing at a rapid rate. I mean, the GDP has consistently grown, you know, every year since, I don't know, the 80s um, because of the natural gas reserves um, and the petro petroleum industry. Um, but once things have started to be kind of on a roll, they also set up um, a company called Qatar Holding, um, which is the part of their investment authority and responsible for their, their investments outside. Um, and if you're a Londoner, you'll know that a lot of stuff in London was brought up by Qataris. So Harrods, uh, the Shard, um, a lot of Barclays Bank, Heathrow Airport, um, and lots of places, lots of companies all around the world as well. Um, banks, um, the Volkswagen Group, I know they've got investments in that. Um, Royal Dutch Shell, Bank of America, um, Tiffany, just like all these big brands that um, people had traditionally thought were going to be owned by, you know, Western um, or European people. They also um, became in, um, involved in those kind of investments. And overall, basically, all of the investment and all of the business activity is all about either developing the land or increasing the wealth of the ruling family. Um, and when it comes to even the businesses inside what we talk about big business and things like that they're all owned by the royal family or close relatives um, of the royal family and um, partners so it, there isn't much opportunity for example for a foreign person to go in and buy things or just a random even a Qatari without a wealthy heritage or connections can't own things um, and that is really interesting dynamic they do correct me if I'm wrong do they have um, large Western companies there or foreign companies? They do, but they only allow companies in that um, match the, with their current investment interests. So there are a lot of, um, for example, education companies um, that have been growing there over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and also banking. We know banking pretty much is an international thing. Um, so there, there's strong relationships between the international banking industry and the Qatari bank. But they also do have a big and a growing sector for Islamic finance, for people who maybe uh, don't do business with the big banks or the, uh, the big banking families. Um, there's also, you know, the option to do Islamic finance with Islamic banks. 
Okay, it's interesting. I have to ask Matilda and Victor. Um, right, I hold that question. We have um, a comment before uh, from Anders. Uh, he's saying about Qatar. Qatar has played a certain role politically and thereby have been under threat from Saudi, Israel, and U.S. to a certain extent, especially the old uh, the old U.S. administration. This may have played a role for Qatar specifically. Yes, of course. Okay, thank you. Um, this goes to, well, Victor and Matilda. Do, do you know, is there a same kind of policy where the local must own a certain percent, whether it's with big business or in Iran and Nigeria? Yeah. If the, in principle, in principle, yes. In principle, yes. But in practice, not not really, because of the lack of enforcement on these policies. Like um, lately, um, the petroleum industry bill in Nigeria was just passed, which is to enable local content. And local content would mean like the uh, medium and low scale. Um, contracting needs to go to indigenous people for them to take over like wedding like supplies of but it has a category but to your to answer your question in principle yes but in practice because of lack of enforcement and um, um the government who has to like enforce it is in bed with i would say it's in bed with the multinational so yeah, lack of enforcement would not allow them to like actually take that all the way. And Matilda? Um, I mean, at the moment in Iran, no, because there's no foreign companies investing in Iran because of the sanctions. Lots of foreign banks and uh, uh, are uh, out of Iran right now. Also, um, the only company that actually is working with Iran is agriculture and medicine. Um, recently, if somebody was following the news, um, President Obama managed to do the nuclear deal, which 25 billion, for example, Boeing was, 25 billion, Boeing was going towards uh, Iran. But then the deal was off because the President uh, Trump came and, um, you know, they're out of this deal now. So you see... Uh, Big companies cannot come in in Iran. Uh, foreign uh, foreigners cannot invest in Iran at the moment either because uh, there are a lot of sanctions. You cannot exchange money. So maybe if you're from Dubai, maybe you can. No, but th there are a lot of restrictions there. Uh, if they know uh, the money is going to uh, America or to Europe, then you're in a big trouble. Mm -hmm. Being jail <laughs> and oopsie again, you might not be around again. But uh, so it's really difficult right now to do deals with Iran. Okay, thanks a lot. We're get, we're gonna play another quick video, and this is about. Okay, Simon is disconnected, <laughs> so uh, we'll just try to go through the comments because we have a lot of them. Um, Simon is connected. So, uh, we're just. Oh, sorry, I'm here. Okay, go ahead, Simon. Apologies for that. Um, yeah, we're just about to play a video, and it's going to be in relation to 
an audience question that's going to come out. And it's basically looking at how business is seen in one in China and the business is seen in America. It's a very short seg section, but it's interesting concept. I actually saw this on social media a couple of months ago, and I had to personally give it a like because it was very informative and interesting. So I'm going to play this section for you and um, just see how we go from there. Excuse me a bit. What's going on here? Oh, that's not it. Okay, everybody can see that? Yes. Okay, we're good to go. The, the political changes that have taken place in China in this past 66 years uh, have been wider and broader and greater than probably any other major country in modern memory. So in that time, China ceased to be communist. Is that what you're saying? Well, China is a market economy and it's a vibrant market economy, but it is not a capitalist country. Here's why. There's no way a group of billionaires could control the Politburo as billionaires control American policymaking. So in China, you have a vibrant market economy, but capital does not rise above political authority. Capital is not, does not have enshrined rights. In America, capital, the interest of capital and capital itself has risen above the, na the American nation. The political authority cannot check the power of capital. And that's why America is a capitalist country, but China is not. Okay, so moving back. So the point of that, sharing that video, was just to point out that you've got, China says one party, two systems, but what they're making... What would you give a excuse me? To become more rational. What what they're saying is, at the end of the day, big business does not supersede the authority of the government, and the government's there to make sure the people's interests um, are looked after. And um, I'm not saying China's perfect. Obviously, every country has its flaws, but that is a very interesting statement because I also seen a documentary where China. Someone says it was an American documentary. He said the worst thing for America in is sorry, the biggest threat for America is corruption because everything's about money and big business is having a major influence. So that's why I shared that video. But moving along, um, excuse me, we've, sorry, Howla, can you run that um, question? That yes. audience question? Thanks. Yeah, so an audience question is there, what you can see, feel free to come up with comments as you normally do. You know how it goes for the regulars and for the new people. Well, welcome to the party. So question to you, Howler. Yes, go ahead. The French government said a job is a human right. Do you feel this is reflected as a French citizen? Well, I think the, the right to work is part of the dignity of the human being and uh, it's been affirmed for a long time the first time it's been affirmed in, in France in 1848 by the Second Republic. And also when you see the, um, the values of the French Republic, you see uh, liberty, equality and fraternity and equality that everybody has the right uh, to work regardless of their uh, background, ethnics or, 
or their differences. Uh, and also when you see the score values and you see all this kind of uh, legal basis, uh, you see that it's different a little bit from the reality, which is in France, it's a little bit different because um, it's very hard to, for someone who is, even if he's French, but someone is coming from a different part of France or from poor areas, they have a hard time to, 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 to find work and uh, to go to that social elevator that uh, people seems to talk about. So um, I do think that the work is a, is a human right, but and also people could find jobs here in France and work, but actually there are a lot of discrimination and inequality and especially in large corporations where there are a lot of discrimi discrimination. And I'm talking from experience uh where people could judge you not only by your uh, skills but only by your ethnic backgrounds and where you come from so of course there are a lot of inequalities despite that the constitution and laws are different from the reality back to you Sam. thanks a lot for that so i believe we have some more comments can you of course yes we have a lot of comments thank you guys keep those comments coming in so we have a comment from uh, Daniel. He's saying when businesses undergoes bailouts, their stability to remain afloat in the market hangs in the balance. Uh, hence job losses. For instance, most airlines have been affected due to COVID-19 pandemic, which indeed has shrinked their operational capacity. Yes, we do agree with you. And I think Simon, uh, you prepared an area where we're talking about uh, the COVID and the lockdown and how they affected uh, mm -hmm. these kind of businesses. Uh, Anders is saying Qatar has managed to play a leading role in the region, the role that Saudi has wanted to play. Yes, it's what's uh, back to what Carla was discussing about Qatar. Uh, we have a lot of comments here. So another one from Anders too. Several small states had used this type of principle to not be so sensitive for aggressive financial maneuvers from outside interests. Uh, go ahead, Simon. We'll keep those comments. Uh... Okay, thanks a lot for that. Um, next, next question is: What um, what changes should be made to the regu regulations in your country when it comes to big business, or to I should say policies, really, because it's policies that the governments are meant to make that keeps the uh, big business at bay. So that goes out to. How, sorry, um, Carla and Matilda, please. What businesses, what policies should be in place to ensure that big business does not overpower government? Well, well I can say, well, in, in Iran, the businesses, they don't overpower the government. So, um, yeah, I would rather uh, to be the other way around because you see that Iran is governed by the religion a lot. And I think that should be separated, that government and policy should be separated from religion. Um, so I would vote that, I mean, to have a revolution. <laughs> so Iran comes out of this state where it is. I think my, I would have to be worried about right now going back to Iran. <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, the only solution is revolution. So uh, businesses can thrive and there is no problem. I, I like what China is doing, but Iran is very far from that. 
Iran is very suppressed. The people cannot be very successful if they're not part of the government. And that means they have to be religious. That means they have to be a certain relative of the government. Um, it kind of like um, uh, Qatar, what was uh, Carla explaining. For 80 million people, that's too much. So you're only having a certain type of a people having a lot of money, which are the part of the government. So the re regular people cannot make that much money. So I, I would, my solution will be revolution. That's interesting. Do you want to read out some comments there, Harla, please? Yes, we have comments, a lot of comments from Anders. So the first one is saying the sanctions on Iran is still active until the nuclear deal is settled. Uh, and uh, about China, Chinese laws say that every company in China has to obey state's rules. That means that the state, the party, always have the last to say, yes. Um, this this one of the reasons Hawaii won't be allowed to be part of the infrastructure in several uh, European countries. Um, Anders saying US is not good, uh, but by many considered a better choice than if the world was dominated by Russia and China that are considered to be two totalitarian, two totalitarian states, yes. Uh, companies should pay local taxes and saying otherwise companies sneak away money to tax havens. <laughs> we have Thomas back. Uh, thank you for coming back. So freedom is everything. That's why America's great big business in the US and China would sell their granny for a pound. They're they're not nice. We need the woman running big businesses soon and then we will get nicer big businesses and a nicer world. Yes, I do agree with you, Thomas. <laughs> we have Sasha coming back. It's not about countries nowadays. The power of the lobbies are international. Local governments is just a joke compared to international think tanks or big lobbies. Yes. Okay. Just um, can you go back one um, comment, please? I just, just want to see what... The one with... About okay, with... yes. Uh, just a note, because I watched a documentary and I also noticed this when I was living in Africa, in East Africa, Kenya, is that women run, have a big chunk of small businesses running in Africa from, from what I see from the commute they do from uh, East Coast to over to West Coast of Nigeria, Ghana. It's all run by them. It's all run by them. And all the way down to South Africa, they're just carrying what they can carry and selling. So they are making their way, but it's just not at the top. But then there's nothing wrong with getting being in control of all the little things. I'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing wrong because a lot of little things make a bit, a lot of crumbs make a big loaf of bread at the end of the day. You just don't realize it until you until you fall. But okay, moving along. So back to you, Carla. Um, that question that I asked. Well, yeah, it, it's a combination of different things, really. I would say one of the issues we've got is is here in Thomas's uh, comment. I, I like what he says. There. It's not just about women, but I think that um, in the UK we've seen, especially in COVID, during COVID, but it's been happening slowly um, over the last 10 years or more, is the big penalties on local business and family businesses um, because of this kind of 
who is it? David Icke calls it a totalitarian tiptoe. And I love that phrase where it's like these massive companies are just tiptoeing around, gathering things up. It reminds me of my son when he plays Monopoly and he just goes around just scraping up this, this and this until he collects any, any wins. And that's what's been happening. And that is something that I would change because I think that that has, it's changed the world in terms of it's allowed this opening for these greedy people because that's what they are really, it's greed. And it's not greed, you know, if someone was greedy and they were collecting loads of wealth and then they were doing amazing humanitarian things globally, that would be a different issue. But we're not seeing that, we're seeing it as greed, you know, these massive companies and they're taking in billions and you've got this rich list and all this, but we've got basic problems unsolved in the world. And then they're doing these advertising saying, oh, we need to use less plastic and we need to save the earth and we need to do this. And they're talking to us, the common small person that has no power and very little money to do anything because of the massive taxes um, that the governments charge. But actually, it's the rich people that need to solve the problems, not the everyday people. You know, we're running small charities and giving money to the poor and all of that kind of stuff while these rich people sit down, you know, raking it all in. Um, and telling us what we need to do. So I think that balance has gone a bit askew in the world. Um, and also the taxes, Anders brings out there about companies. I think also the companies, the, it's the wrong people that are paying the taxes. So you've got the small person paying tax. They've just increased taxes here in the UK, um, talking about, you know, the public has to pay for COVID and all of that kind of thing. But then you still have these rich people. Who was it who said, was it Anders or uh, said about tax havens? um who was that who said that can you put that um comment back it's up? Anders, yes yeah so you've got super wealthy people yeah. that, that probably have more money than they know what to do with um evading taxes and the common person you know being held over a barrel for want of a better term for their taxes which is just it's unjust you know it's unfair and also a lot of the people that are paying taxes and paying them consistently throughout their lifetime are people who are making massive contributions either through the work that they do in things like the NHS and help, you know, care of the elderly and teaching children and things like that. Um, and the penalties for them are very strict. And also the entrepreneurs, There's, they've been under a lot of pressure, entrepreneurs and, and the self-employed um, to pay their taxes. And, you know, the tax man will throw the book at you for not paying your taxes if you're self-employed, but then you have these massive uh, companies that are finding ways, loopholes to escape taxes. So those are the things that I would change. I think we need a shake-up of values, like Matilda said. We need a, a global revolution, um, but maybe not just for economics, for values, because like values have gone down the pan. And you, and, and some of these companies as well, their ethics are disgusting. Their ethics in things like slave labour, their ethics in, um, you know, the destruction of the earth, the raping of the earth and taking out all the minerals and all this kind of stuff for mass production. Things like that also need to be looked at, you know, and stop pointing the finger at the small person and telling us we need to use less plastic bottles when these massive companies are dumping tons of toxic waste into the earth, you know, that kind of stuff. Need to shake up with that, I think. Thanks, thanks for that. I understand Victor's got a point he wants to raise, but just before that, can we have some comments? And I just want to also say, Anders, love you lots, but please can you block your comments? Like, get them all in on one page instead of loads and loads and loads, because <laughs> it slows us down. But um, over to you, Hala. Yes. But we do love your comments, Anders. Keep, yeah, keep do, those yeah. coming in. So, Akram is back. 
And he's saying, based on the title of today's episode, the effects of big businesses and governments, we can say that naturally there is relationship between businessmen and governments. The question does not have to be whether there is a relationship or not, but what kind of relationship is this? And what are its terms? It's very interesting. Yeah. Um, well, we'd like to hear your opinion on that, Akon. <laughs> Because we know that, for example, a lot of big businesses like um, Amazon, all these businesses, they are influencing the government to change regulations. For example, uh, Bezos, he, Jeff Bezos, he uh, increased the minimum wage by $15 for his workers, and he wants everyone to do the same, even the small businesses. And the small businesses can't afford that, so they will go out from out of business. So yes, it's uh, it's uh, it's, uh, it's surely a love relationship between the government and the big. Yeah, but, but, but if, if, if you look at it one way, uh, when it comes to big businesses, they create they create massive employment. You can say their practices might be a little bit off, but they create huge employment. Uh, yeah, huge employment and the value they create in the system. But according to Akram, now what? Um, the main, the main thing is what are the terms? Well, if you look at it this way, policy lobbies at the highest level are being funded by big business. So the shape, the think, the, the think tanks, the, the um, stop using plastic, stop doing this, stop doing that. See all these, all these policies, all these uh, what's it called? They are being, they are being shaped or they are being funded by big business so they bring someone in front of the camera who who speaks who's like a sheep and speaks so softly and you can yeah it actually makes sense it actually makes sense but behind the scene the type of thing that's going on behind the scene i love big business i like business but the behind the scene what's going on behind the scenes it is it is sometimes it is really really dirty yeah. So, but the government knows that if they go, sometimes it's the devil you know better than the angel you don't like, you want to go in bed with. Yes. Okay, we've got a comment there. Um, yes, from Nelson, and a following question, he says to the group, what would be the ideal relationship between big businesses and small businesses? I think we could put, I'd ask Matilda to answer that, but I think that's also a question that can go out to the audience, so feel free to jump in. Is that the final comment or is there any more? No, we have a lot of comments though. Let's, let's push them out, please. Of course. So we have uh, Daniel here. I think a meaningful implementation of taxation, which is afford affordable to businesses, this will create a sustainable infrastructure and level playing ground for small businesses enterprises. Yes. Nelson is back. I guess the question is why are the wealthy wanting to evade minimize taxes? Maybe a question that they don't see the benefits of paying taxes. <laughs> well, they <Yeah>. are greedy. <laughs> uh, we have also um, comments uh, from Akram too. My question to you through your research on this topic, do you have examples of businessmen who sacrificed their own interests for the benefit of the national interest? 
Mm. So if anyone is free to answer this question. Okay. But in the meanwhile, Matilda, can you answer what that question that Nelson put there, please? Yes. I think it was this one. Um, yeah. Yes, what would be the ideal relationship between big businesses and small businesses? Um, well, I think the intention is very important. And the intention of a of the people of that country is to bring prosperity and um, I mean maybe what's happening in Qatar and development then I think big businesses and small businesses can work together to um, to create that kind of an environment um, maybe small businesses can uh, understand the agenda of the big businesses so they can train their employees and uh, people who are working for them to maybe eventually become a part of the big business and also how they can collaborate together to get the right students for their jobs in that country. I think the intention is important. If the intention of the big business is different than the small businesses, then there, there won't be any collaboration. But if it's for the country, then all, and also the government can work with the small business and the big business to create that kind of an environment. So revolution, it's needed. <laughs> okay. As we have... We have a really interesting comments from Thomas um, in responding to, to that question. He said, the values that that's what is all about. Are you good? Do you want to help others? Big businesses act like it does, yet we know it doesn't. They like the world itself need to care. Yes. We've got, Go more, we've got quite a few more comments, haven't we? Let's get some of yes. Yes, we have comments, one from Anders too. IKEA was on its way to establish business in Russia. They invested several hundred millions that but pulled out in the end because they did not want to pay corruption money. That's a good example. Nelson, question for the group. What would be the ideal relationship between big business and small businesses and government following up to Akram in our comments. I think I'll answer that question because I used to be a construction manager, site manager, and we used to build supermarkets. And there was a policy where the government just said to the big supermarkets, like Walmart, which is our Asda here, and Tesco, is that you're not going to be allowed to open any more stores. You're putting all the smaller people out of businesses and you've got to work with the stores you've got. So what Tesco did to get around that was bought out all the little corner shops <laughs> and started to call them Metro. So instead of going to the normal corner shop where you'd have your local man, they'd say, don't worry, we'll buy you out or you, we'll move in and you can get more business under our name. So it's a franchise. Um, so there's big businesses. Obviously, they've got a big think tank. They're thinking five, 10 years, 15 years down the line and they get away. But the government was trying to save big, uh, small businesses and have a desegregation line between big business and small business. I know there's some villages down in the West Country where they just said, we do not want any big businesses in our village. And they haven't. They don't even have a boot. Everything is local community and everybody specifically buys from everybody. 
and that's it. They said, we don't want that. And they vote with the, you know, smaller communities, they vote with their feet and all these kind of things. And it's looked after like that. But back to the comments. Um, how yes, we have a great response from Akram. My answer to Nelson's questions about the relationship between big businesses and small businesses is the relationship will remain strong and natural as long as the interests are mutual. And the adults will eliminate the young as soon as they feel a competition. Yes, big businesses, they hate competition. They do hate competition and they put regulations to eliminate uh, those young businesses. Uh, Thomas is saying big businesses need to care about the relationship. They don't. When they do, it will work for all. Okay. Now, I'm just going to, there's a question rolling along the bottom, and this goes out to everybody, the audience and all the guys here as we're rounding up. So has big business been the main driving factor behind COVID lockdowns and vaccinations? And if so, how? I saved this question to the last because I know everybody's got to say, those who are pro-vaccination, those who aren't, I don't think anyone likes to be locked down, especially not for two years. But anyway, I'm more than interested to hear your opinion. I will start with Victor because he's smiling, but the audience, as you answer, I'm sure how will read that. I know, I, know, I know you are going to go there. You're going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, these conspiracy theories. Listen, COVID has made a lot of money for big business and even made some new rising stars. See, but I won't say in its entirety because look at Zoom. Zoom became a multi-billion dollar company during COVID. So but was, Zoom, was Zoom in favor of the lockdown? Yes, no, no, yes. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that uh, big business were behind COVID. But then some people would say Zoom wasn't big business. They may be Zoom. now. No, but they weren't big business in the scale of the Microsoft or the pharmaceuticals and things like that. That's what some people would say. But moving on, um, Hala, what would you say about this? Well, I, I, I do think that a lot of uh, small businesses, because we need also to define the small businesses and because a lot of online businesses got good during COVID, but the local businesses in a lot of areas, especially in, uh, in, uh, in African countries and a lot of areas, they got shut down because of COVID. And uh, they have really massive, uh, huge financial problems. Uh, while in some countries, uh, they got a little bit of uh, help and aid. So I think also uh, COVID is a, is a, is a, increased a lot of inequalities in, in different areas in other countries than the Western countries. Yeah. Okay. Carla, because you deviated slightly there, Hala. Has big business been a major driving factor? What See, what I don't. I don't know enough. This is the truth. I don't know enough about the truth about COVID. I know what's on the media, um, and I don't know enough to say whether or not it's been a driver. But I think one of the things it has done is it's revealed how business is working, and it's revealed a lot of what goes on behind the scenes that we don't know about, and how decisions are often made because of the economy rather than the interests of the people. So I'll give an example of that here in Britain. We've had a lot of toing and froing, back and forth. We're opening, we're not opening, we're opening this and we're not opening that. Um, we're not letting children have sports day, but we are having massive football matches. That was an, an example over the summer where everybody was like, 
we're not having our children's sports days because of COVID, but we are having massive football, international football match. Um, that's because of money. And that's really obvious that it's because of money. And also we had some to in and fro in where the parties were arguing about when we should open and when we shouldn't open. So it, a lot of people were saying that things opened up too soon. And then it became apparent that they opened up too that soon because of the economy, because there, were, there would have just been too much damage on the economy. And then it makes you tip your head and say, well, is it really the interest of people's health um, that drives whether or not we open things or is it money? And if it's money, whose money is it? Whose money is more important? So clearly it wasn't the small business person's money that was important because things were, were closed for long enough for them to suffer. But just before some of the bigger businesses or the industry itself collapsed, then things open up. So all of that, I guess, is why people will sometimes say, well, is big business driving this? Are they behind that? You can understand why somebody might have a conspiracy theory mindset where that's concerned because it looks as if um, there are certain people that were meant to suffer as a result of it. But like I said, I don't know enough to say that because speculate, but I'm not an expert in big business. But what I have seen is that there are some people's money that's more important and some people's business that seems to be more important than others. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, Howler? Yes, we have comments. Uh, Anders, he's saying, uh, answer to the previous question we have talking about uh the big businesses and small businesses you have to create an uh, optimal environment that benefits existence and possible growth in a sustainable way the social aspects should be included so the so societies thrive uh we have daniel here the biggest challenge is affecting local businesses in africa and other parts of the world is corruption the governments enter into bilateral agreements with other governments, notwithstanding that small businesses are an avenues to wealth creations. Uh, Sasha is saying big businesses will replace soon a lot of small businesses. We will see soon a lot of unemployment and universal revenue. Technology is coming. <laughs> no, I agree with that, Sasha. Yes. <laughs> yes. We have Nelson saying lockdown, big businesses will, it depends. If you are an airline travel cruise industry, those would say no. However, they also don't want to be the ones to be seen as facilitators, uh, victors of COVID. I just want to say something here as well at this point that just I was thinking because of what Nelson's saying there about big business um, and the, the vectors of COVID. One of the things that we often overlook when we're just an, a normal person, just doing normal stuff, is that rich people are very rarely affected by changes in society. So what I mean by that is if one industry collapses, let's say you're a massive investor and you have lots of money in airline or in holiday cruise company and things like that, you have got the money to, to transfer or to pivot and to move from one sector to another. And if we look at some of what we call big business, so these are these massive corporations that own lots of things. So they have pharmaceuticals, they have um, cars, they have industry, they have hotels, they have all sorts of things. Um, they're never, their money is never invested in one thing. So when that collapses, they just pivot, they go somewhere else, they take their money out, they invest it in something else, they buy up. Uh, whatever is thriving at that time. Um, so it doesn't really affect them as much as it affects everyday person who maybe just has a company or one small local business. Um, and that's also something that's important to, to point out, 
that some people are less affected by um, breakdowns or by issues. And in fact, they thrive because they've got a mindset where they know how to capitalize on a crisis. If you've been investing for many, many years and you have a history in business, you know that a crisis is not a crisis when you are wealthy. It's an opportunity for you to change. It's an opportunity for you to capitalize. An example is when there's a housing crash, housing crashes don't affect wealthy people. They affect people who are paying a mortgage. And then they, there's a problem in the economy and then the prices of the houses drop and people have to sell their house at an auction or whatever um, just to pay a fraction of what they owe the bank. But then the rich people run in and buy all the property. And then they, they wait for the, the housing boom or whatever to, and the prices to go up they, and then they sell them and they make a massive profit because to them it's just pocket change. Whereas to the everyday person, it's their whole livelihood. That's also something we saw in COVID. Um, rich people uh, didn't really lose anything. Well, thanks Carla, for that, Carla. Carla, that is why that, 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 that is why I'm a huge advocate of multiple streams of income, multiple streams of income, because when one sector goes bust, you have the next sector to rely on. That is why it's been said it's a popular saying in the entrepreneurial sector or in the business world. Rich people, they have at least seven flows, seven income flows. So when one goes bust, the other one is there. According mm -hmm. to Warren Buffett, you need to build, you need to build the moats around yourself, deep moats around yourself, whereby nothing can come into your castle. So mm -hmm. you're very right, but yeah. it's an open game for everyone to play. Yeah, but also when you're a person, and, and who was it who said there was a comment earlier on about um, people, entrepreneurs, uh, people get rich by being entrepreneurs, but no, they don't because there's such a thing as intergenerational wealth. Some people have been wealthy and will stay wealthy and they have not been entrepreneurs. They're born into money. And that's not everyone. That's not discrediting entrepreneurs or people who have got a business mindset or multiple streams of income or people who have come from nothing and built themselves up through their own hard graft. But that's not the case with everyone. And that's often assumed um, but that also needs to be pointed out. Some people are born into wealth and they are born with a level of financial privilege that allows them to, to invest and to build massive pockets of wealth. Um, just saying again. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Matilda, if you can comment, we're coming to an end. In the meanwhile, Howler, as the comments come up, if you just don't bother read them out, just let them scroll across the screen to make sure everybody let their comments be seen. And Matilda, over to you. Um, I don't think so, because one of the big companies in the world was oil and gas, and they were hit by the COVID the most. So I don't think, I mean, they created the situation. Uh, I think there is a, if there is a, a agenda, they're bigger than the big companies. Uh, I don't think the big companies control the world. So, I don't know. But the lockdown and vaccine, uh, I don't think so. It's bigger, bigger picture. And mm -hmm. I want to answer uh, to Andreas Kardel because he, he mentioned something about Iran and he listens to Trita Parsi. He's a very interesting guy. And for anyone else that wants to uh, look at the Iran situation, there is a book. He wrote a book called uh, Losing an Enemy. It's an interesting book and it talks about the world, the complexity of the world and what happened in Vienna 2015 for the nuclear deal and how other countries uh, 
their interest was in that deal. So, um, Anders, read that book if you're interested. Okay. okay. Now, as we're rounding up, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to, one last question, and we can all answer it like two minute section. And it is, do you think there will ever be a perfect relationship between big business, government, and the public in the country you reside in? Starting with you, Hala. <laughs> well, uh, I do think uh, in, in France, government and large corporations, they love each other. <laughs> they have the same interests. So uh, I don't think that ever those relationships will collapse. Uh, but I do, uh, what I love in France here, they, they do really encourage entrepreneurs to create ideas, but only in the, in the technology and artificial intelligence field. So it's very encouraged here in this kind of areas than the other areas, uh, because for them it's the future. Well, technology is the future, so <laughs> over to you. Victor, so. your, your comments, please. Um, I reside. I reside in both places. I reside in the UK and I reside in Nigeria. Um, Let's talk about Nigeria then. <laughs> no, no, no. Let me talk about UK first. <laughs> in the UK, because because of um, most of the big businesses, the institutional businesses, they came out from they came out from the government, like the BT, like. Um, BP, they came out from the government. Um, what's it called? So they, they, the relationship is still going to be, you see, like BBC, it's going to be the same. They carry the government's agenda and they push it forward. In my opinion, that is how I see it. In Nigeria, there's never going to be a perfect world that we, the masses, or we, the ordinary people, we see. The government um, being being in uh, being at opposite ends with big business, we will never. We'll, it, it will be difficult to see that. Okay, thanks for that, um, Akram. Thank you for that comment there about suggesting um, what our next topic can be. I just have to let you know and let the audience know. Also, Daniel, Daniel reached out to me during the week. Is that we do love it when you give us input about what we should be, what a good topic would be to, for discussion, because we're not just here for ourselves, we're here for you, the audience. We do take turns in hosting. So you're, we, it is noted, but someone has to select that, um, that subject that you're requesting that we discuss based on their personality and their personal knowledge. So we, but don't think it's being pushed under the carpet, it is being acknowledged. Over to you, Matilda. Well, as I said, in Iran there is no correlation. I mean, the only thing that you can have a you can have a big business big business in, in Iran is if you're part of the government. My suggestion would be of, I would like these three parts to be separated, and the intention of it is important. If the intention is the growth of the company, the three of them can work together based on the one goal that they have. But unfortunately, I don't think that's the case in Iran or in most of the countries. Uh, big businesses want to make money and capitalism wins at the end because we, whatever we do is based on money. 
and greed. But maybe if we change the value system of the people, they will think differently. So how they process this value is important. Okay, thank you. And Carla? Just repeat the question again, because I think I know what it is, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Will there ever be a uh, perfect relationship between big business, uh, government, and the people's interests? Um, I say yes, um, when, as Matilda said, when values uh, are at the core of what we do. And I'm quite interested in seeing what happens in Afghanistan. I'm really watching it to see, because I think the whole world is watching, to see how a group of people who say that God or the rule of God and religion governs what they do, how they will run their country. That's going to be an interesting thing for the world stage to watch, because as we know, as Matilda's just said, that money is the core thing. Economic growth trumps any other kind of growth. But economic growth is only one type of growth. And we've seen how economic growth it has led to countries going from nothing to something amazing overnight. I witnessed that in Qatar in the eight years that I was there. Um, you see just sand transformed in a short period of time. And it is a beautiful thing to see what human beings can create economically. However, inside of that, the structures and the values and things like that is another form of growth. And whenever you have a society that just focuses on infrastructure and economic growth um, to the detriment of other things like education and quality education, not just the education where you send every child to school, because that doesn't necessarily make them educated people, doesn't make them good citizens, does it? Um, so I think that that's when we would have um, a balance is when there's good values and when there's a lot of vetting and um, the public needs or the collective, the society needs to know what's going on inside of organizations and have a say. And also there needs to be some kind of system for um, vetting and like, I don't know what you call it, honesty about where money's going, how money's being made and, and less of this kind of underhanded clandestine stuff going on where people are paying money, for example, into taxes and not realizing that it's going to fund wars and things like that. We need more ethics, more values. And when we have that, um, and countries agree what their ethics and value system is and all the people in the country know what they are and everything's being run that way, then we'll probably see more of a balance. But I think the only place we're going to get to observe something like that happening as we speak is in Afghanistan at the moment because the whole world is watching to see what they're going to do. Okay, well, thanks a lot for that. I just want to... Um, we'll be here same time next week, 7 p.m. British Standard Time. 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for the Yankees out there and 9 p.m. Uh, East African Time for my Kenyans and everybody else. But in the meanwhile, I just want to thank everybody who's been with us. So we've got George, Sasha, of course, with his, uh, Daniel, nice to have you. Anders, yes, thanks for your input. And uh, where else we got? We've got quite a few. We've got... Um, Akram, can't forget you, and Nelson, yes, he's one of us, but he's out there now supporting us in one way or another. And we've got Frederick. My personal opinion, do I think big business and government and um, people's interests will be met perfectly? I'd like to be able to say no. Yes, sorry. 
But in honesty, I don't think so in a big society. I think if you had a, a village community, it works well. Um, there is a book about that, that where you live in a smaller society, you have a better environment and you have a bit, the people's interests are met much more. I can't remember the name of the book as I recommended it on here. But anyway, thanks a lot for all your input. And we look forward to seeing you same time next week. Can you guys, starting with Howler, just remind us your podcast and where you can be found? Yes, my podcast is Women Stories Podcast. So you can catch my podcast on Spotify and all podcast platforms. Over to you, Carla. My podcast is the Wonder and Wellbeing Podcast, which is a podcast for parents and educators, kids between the ages of five and 14. And it's all about wellbeing and education. Over to you, Matilda. And thank you, Carla. My podcast is about, uh, it's Coffee with Matilda, Journey to Self. It's about finding yourself, loving yourself, and coming out of adversity. Uh, you can find me in all the um, uh, podcast platforms, uh, Facebook and YouTube. Over to you, Victor. Yeah, thank you, Matilda. My, my podcast is about entrepreneurship and uh, mindset strategies. And um, that's for entrepreneurs podcast. You can find it on Spotify, Teacher, and find it on um, all major podcast platforms. And even in Ghana, that is the name of the platform, Ghana. Yeah, mostly in India. Anyways, yeah, and also on YouTube. You can find me over to you, um, Simon. And thanks. Yes, Simon, Taxi Chronicles, I can be found on all major platforms and we publish every day at 8 a.m. starting with morning, morning, morning. And so if, you're in that, if you're in a place that it's nighttime, it's just tough luck. But anyway, we look forward to seeing you next week and same time, same place, same people, same discussion. And bye. Bye-bye.